Amen. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, my God. Ah, oh, Lord, we could just pray to you again and again. Lord, I love how you speak to my spirit, God, in our moments of intimacy and praying and talking to you, Lord God. Oh, Lord, I am praying that you pour out, God, as you've been pouring out to me this week as I looked at the text. God, pour out, God, on my brothers and sisters here, Lord. Let them see the beauty of what it is and the privilege that we have to speak and commune with you, God, not as enemies, Lord God, but as children talking to the parents. As children talking to their dad, their father, God, the beauty of prayer. Oh, Lord, you're good. You're good. Illuminate your scripture. Oh, my God. Yes, God. Illuminate your scripture, Lord. Illuminate your word, God. Praise your name, Lord. Amen, amen. All right, my brothers and sisters, you guys, this is the cool thing about preaching through a text. You know where we're going next week. So you know where we ended last week. We ended in Matthew 6, 6. We went, looked at verses 5 and 6. Um, we, we looked at how, uh, matter of fact, let's just, no, I'll keep going. We, we, we looked at how, uh, Christ showed us what the hypocritical prayer person looks like. Um, they're using the posture of communication. With God, something that was meant for God, the posture of communication with God in prayer, they're using that to seek their own glory. We looked at how Jesus reminds us to go to our inner closet, which is hyperbole, to, to contrast the, the hypocrite who wants to pray in a public to be known. We looked at how uh, ultimately prayer is the attitude of the heart when I'm approaching God. How's my heart? That's what matters most when we pray. Or it's not so much where we pray, but it's the attitude or the attention of our heart. Uh, we also discuss in the Q and A that a mind that our, our mind. Um, in prayer in public should be asked in private. We should kind of come in that same way as we would pray in private. We're coming to God in that same way in public with that same mindset. Um, and so we, we don't switch it up, but we are still praying in public as if I'm praying in private just with the Lord. And in these next couple of verses, today we're going to look at 7 through 9, just 9. And we're going to look at how uh, Jesus, he's going to show us a different angle. Because last week we looked at how the hypocrite in the synagogue prays. And today we're going to look at how the pagan and their practices on prayer. And then we're going to get in a little bit into the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. We're going to look at verse 9. And we're going to go up to our Father who is in heaven. So that is where we are headed today. So let's read the text. Let's read verses 7 through 9 and we'll come back. Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching on prayer, orthopraxy, how we ought to pray. Remember chapter 5 was on doctrine largely. He was showing us the teaching that they were taught and how he, he was contrasting the teaching that they were taught with the correct interpretation or meanings of that teaching. Now Jesus is showing the, the correct practice or action that we should do in our uh, that comes from our doctrine. Verse 7 reads, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven. We're just going to stop right there. 
our Father who is in heaven. Before we get into the text, one of the other cool things about just preaching through a text, when you are not seeing something really clear in the previous week, you can just kind of go back to that in your coming week. And so one of the things I, I was looking at again, just from my teaching in chapter five, uh, I'm sorry, chapter six, verses five and six, I, I had asked the question, um, what is it about our flesh that craves attention of others? What is it about our sinful nature that craves to be acknowledged and validated by others? We, we care about what people think, what they think of us. So, so what is that? And, and I was thinking about how Jesus was describing the, the hypocrite. And it seems that the hypocrite who was seeking the attentions of others had some insecurity issues going on here. Right, that's that's often what what happens for us when we we look for the validation of others, we look for the attention of others. There's there's some insecurities that leads us to needing people to validate who we are, our, our to give us our self worth, to tell us that we are special. We are looking for those other people, and so we will do things, even using practices of God, to get that validation, which really just shows that there's some insecurities in our own self and our own heart. But when we, when we begin to rest in the gospel and find our validation there, when we, when we rest in the gospel, there we can find our self-work. And when, when we come and rest in this gospel, guess what? Then we can begin to pray in the public without hypocrisy. Then we can begin to uh, preach in the public without hypocrisy. Then we can give without hypocrisy. Why? Because we are not looking to be validated by others in our good deeds. We are finding our validation. We are finding our, our self-worth in the gospel in Christ alone. Our practices of righteousness then become just for an audience of one, God alone, and not people alone. So we must understand and get the, the full depths of the gospel in our spirit. Because the gospel overcomes insecurities, things where we're feeling insufficient, because we know that we are sufficient fully in the work of Christ and who he is. So if you are like me, who struggle from time to time with insecurities of validation or self-worth, do you not know in those moments when we are looking for uh, the validation of others or we're looking for others to praise us, we are no different than the hypocrite that is giving, that is buying his validation by giving public alms to the poor so that people will see. He's buying that praise. He's buying, he's using his money to give to the poor so that people will see and that they will praise him. He's buying his praise. See, we are no different when we ourselves are looking for validation from others, our self-worth. We are just like that person that is praying in public to be seen, that is giving in public to be seen. There is no different. Oh, how would our life be different if we were satisfied with the gospel? How we would feel so confident that our self-work comes from Christ alone. Our validation comes from Christ alone. Guess what? It would affect what we wear because we buy clothes to impress others. If we found our security and validation in the gospel, it would affect the cars we drive because we buy those sometimes, the different brands to impress others. It would affect the houses and the neighborhoods that we live in because we pick those locations based on how we perceive others will perceive us. If we find our validation in the gospel, it would change all of that. And not only would it change all of that, when we begin to rest in the gospel and set our affections there, then sanctification really happens. 
See, sanctification, it happens, as Jesus brings up in the scenario of giving and praying, when a person comes to understand the fatherhood of God and that they are sons and daughters of God, not by their works, but purely because what Jesus has done, then they can do those things that Jesus has mentioned so far in the text of praying and giving without hypocrisy. That is true sanctification. But it's going to start when we find our hope, when we find our self-worth in the gospel. That's why the gospel, as my sister Deborah was saying, preach it to yourself. Because that is the thing that overcomes insecurities. So now in in the text, in 5 and 6, again, we were looking at the hypocrite in the synagogue. Remember, Jesus was looking at the hypocrite in the synagogue who said, he said they love to stand and pray in the synagogue. That person was likely a person of Jewish descent, right? Because he's talking about standing in the synagogue. But in our text today, in, in, in verse 7, Jesus moves away from the synagogue. He, he moves away from that subject, and he brings us to the practices, the prayer practices of the Gentiles and pagans. So he's moving away from the synagogue. He's going away from there. He's going from that, that hypocritical practices that was being done there in the first century. And now he's moving us to the practices of our pagan neighbors, of the people of the culture. So he's moving from there. And and I love how Jesus structures his teaching because it fits so well with some of our religious habits. It fits so well with some of our religious habits. And and what I mean by that is in verses five and six, Jesus, again, as I mentioned, he's making a contrast between the, the, the practices of the scribes and Pharisees and what true righteousness looks like. So that's what he's doing in five and six. And he's showing us this is what the scribes and Pharisees do. They, they are, there are many, they're hypocritical givers. They're, they're hypocritical and they're praying. They're not really praying towards God. And so he's showing us that. And in Matthew 23, he gives the, the woes on these Pharisees and scribes who are doing all of these hypocritical things. But what we must remember is that these scribes and Pharisees, the ones that are hypocritical in their prayers that Jesus is calling out in chapters, I'm sorry, in verses five and six, what we must remember is that they at the time in the first century, they were the standard of righteousness. What you must understand, they were the orthodox way to pray and give. See, they were the ones that were leading the people, even though they were hypocrites oftentimes, even they, even though they were wrong, the people seen them as the religious leaders. They were the respected religious leaders that everybody followed. So you must understand that this is a, this is a big deal when Jesus is calling them out. He's calling them out because they were the major people that was leading the people. And you gotta think about this. When the blind is leading the blind and you are following bad practices and getting no results from those bad practices, the the natural thing to think specifically when it comes to prayer is, hey, maybe I'm not doing it right. But those pagans over there, those Gentiles over there, when they seem to pray, when they seem to go up to their God, something seems to happen. So let me take on those practices. See, that, that, that is the natural flow of things. That is why Jesus is moving here from the, from the synagogue in verses five and six to the, to the Gentile because there is a temptation oftentimes for us to look at other faiths, look at other religions when we're, when we're desperate and we're crying out, we're not getting the results to want to go and take on their practices. And so Jesus is bringing them that up to them. I believe that's the same thought process that the psalmist has in, in Psalm 73. In, in, in Psalm 73, I just want to read something to you real quick. And, uh, where we at? In Psalm 73, you have a, a believer who's a, who's a follower of God. 
And he says something unique that I think we all feel. And look what he says here in Psalm 73, 3-5. He says this, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. So th- this, this holy person, he's like, man, I'm looking at the wicked. And, I, and I'm looking at their life, and things look to be going pretty good for them. And that's what happens with us. We, we look at our life as we're committed to God, and then we look at others who are not living well. When things are going good, we're like, hold on. I, I'm looking at them, and I know they're not believing like me, and they're do, not doing the same things that I'm doing, but... Something seems to be working on there. And so the psalmist in Psalm 73, is, he's beginning to look at his neighbor, this other person who's not in the same faith as him, and realizing that there's something that they are doing that I maybe need to do. And then the psalmist says in 12 and 14, he says this, Behold, these are the wicked and all and always at ease. They have increasing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. And wash my hands in innocence. So he's looking at himself. He's saying, okay, God, I'm committing to your word. I'm doing what you're saying. I'm trying to keep my heart pure. But when I look at this pagan neighbor over here, when I look at this person who is not doing righteousness, and it looks like their prayers are availing much. It looks like what they're doing, God, is moving. But I'm over here. I'm trying to walk holy and sanctify, but I'm not seeing the results, the blessing. So now the psalmist is wondering, what's going on, God? And, and, and that is naturally what, what happens to us. In our, in our prayer, when we're, when we're not getting the prayer that we want, when we're not seeing the results, we, we sometimes want to go other places and wondering if I'm doing it right. And sometimes those other places can be other p- pagan cultures and practices and rituals. I remember when I was in youth ministry, um, there was a young lady there, and um, she, she was talking about, she, she was admiring the Muslim community. And she was admiring the Muslim community because she looked at them and they were so pious. She was like, they were so pious, they dressed modest and they prayed three times a day. And she was, she was like, they don't look like the so-called Christians I know. They're, they're modest, they're praying three times a day. Maybe they got the true faith. Maybe they are doing something right. See, she was thinking like we do. It's not working over here in this Christian faith, so maybe there's something wrong with my prayer. Maybe i got to look over there and see what's going on. But Jesus is telling his disciples in verse 7, No, you don't do that. Yes, there's pagan practices over there. Yes, they're, they're doing different things. But we're, he, he's saying, we're, we're not going to take on those practices. Jesus is showing us, no, you're not going to take on the hypocritical practice of your Jewish brothers and sisters in the synagogue. And I also don't want you to take on the, the practices of the, of the pagans. See, he's saying, no, we're not going to take on their practices. We're also not going to take on the practices of the, of the pagans, of the Gentiles. Because in verse 7, when he says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles, which you must understand for the pagan culture, when they would pray, they would just ramble on and on and repeat the same phrases, thinking that if I, if I, if I just babble on and on, saying the same words, that that is going to bring my prayer to the ears of God. And so Jesus is saying, no, no, no. We don't want you to do that. I don't want you to act like them. See, Christ understands that culture can influence our spiritual practices and our spiritual discipline. So, he, so he's saying, no, I don't want you to be like that pagan culture because there will be a temptation for us to want to go other places hoping that our prayers will break through, hoping that God will hear us. And so he said, no, 
We're not going to be influenced by culture. We're not going to be influenced by other people's ways, but you're going to follow the way that I'm teaching you. I, I was thinking about a, a show that I was watching with my kids the other day. Or not the other day. They were actually just running around. I was watching it. It's, it's this show called Anthony Bourdain Parts Unknown. And the guy flies all around the world and he goes and he visits different countries and they try different foods. And so this time he was in southern Italy. And he was in southern Italy and he started to talk about how missionaries first came there. You know, when they, when they came there to, you know, to bring the truth, he said they began to mix with their pagan culture there. And the, the Christian culture ended up getting mingled with the pagan culture. And together they created this whole new weird culture with blood and dancing, but it was so-called Christian. But they were being influenced by their pagan culture. And that has happened all throughout Christianity, throughout history. You had church, the church and, and believers would come together with pagan neighbors and they would come and they would form this whole nother culture that was not in line with God's word. And, and so Jesus is bringing us here, telling this audience, no, that is not what you're going to do. You're not going to go and take on the practices of your, your pagan neighbors, thinking that that is going to bring your prayers up to God, thinking that now if you take on their faith and their acts, that God is going to hear you. He said, when you pray, and he says, don't do those things. And trust me, Jesus' audience should have very well known the impact of culture. Because remember, Jesus is speaking largely to a Jewish audience. So they were very familiar with their forefathers in the Old Testament. Their forefathers in the Old Testament who were affected by pagan cultures. Baal, worshiping idols, worshiping trees. See, they should have known very well what Jesus was getting at here. Because all of their forefathers had done the same things. Part of the reason that they were at um, under occupation of the Romans at that period stemmed from what was happening with their forefathers. So they should have understood that what Jesus was saying here with the influence upon culture. One of the examples of how the their forefathers in the Old Testament were affected by the pagan nation around them is in uh, Ezekiel 16. I want to read this to you to show you how easy pagan culture, pagan practices can creep into our spiritual disciplines and affect us. In Ephesians, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 20. I want to read you this verse. Look what he says here. This is God scolding his people. He says this, Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had born to me. That's a major point right there. Jesus said, I'm sorry, the, the father said that you took your sons and daughters. He says that you had born to me. So one, he's claiming the kids that were sacrificed as his own. That's a whole nother subject, but that is something beautiful to just really think on that. God is claiming these innocent young kids who were killed as his own. He says, you had them, but they were mine. You bore those kids unto me, he says in verse 20. He says, you bore them to me and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. He said, were your heart tree so small a matter? Look what he says in 21. You slaughtered again my children. Jesus is taking claim or aim of these kids. He said, these are mine. He said, you slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. So you see how that, that pagan culture just came in and people were sacrificing their own kids. Why? Wow, that is the power and influence of culture. That is the influence of other faith. That is why God is always guarding the Israelites to, no, do not serve other gods. You're going to go into this other land, but do not serve their gods. Why? Because culture and other practices of other people can easily see into our spiritual disciplines. 
Very important to understand that. And one of the, one of the more common ways, I, I guess you could say, is if, if you have cable TV and, and if you cut on the Christian channel, you can all, you can go there and you'll find a person selling like blessed bread. They'll be selling blessed water. They'll, they'll tell you if you sow into this ministry, God is going to hear your prayer. And, and, and while we giggle and laugh, guess what? When you are desperate, when your little baby child is sick and dying, when you're, when your husband or wife is sick or dying, when you're about to lose your house, when your car is about to get repossessed, when you begin that desperate, trust me, that stuff sounds good. It's so easy to want to go on the other side of the grass and think, maybe if I try these practices, even if it doesn't line up with Jesus is saying, maybe if I just do this, then God will hear my prayer. So we giggle. But when you're desperate, when you're desperate for your prayer to reach God, when you want God to hear your prayer, when you are that desperate, if the preacher tells you to turn around and jump three times and God will hear your prayer, when you're that desperate, guess what happened? You might do it. You may take on that influence of the culture. Another place we see the influence of pagan culture is, is largely in the Catholic faith, where you will find people praying to statues. I remember my first time going to, to Mexico and we went to, to like real Mexico, not the tourist Mexico. <laughs> we went to Udidia in a village and they have this huge statue of Mary. And people would just go there and just bend down and look up at her and just start praying. And I'm like, where did this come from? That's, that's not scripture. That's not in the word, but that's the pagan influence. Or you, you have people who will pray to a gazillion saints. There's a saint for every prayer, for everything. These practice, that is the influence of pagan culture. That's the influence of being in a culture and having that culture come on and influence your own spiritual disciplines. But Christ tells his disciples in verse 7 that, again, you are not to be like them. And he tells them you should not be like them because there is a temptation to copy. He's not just saying don't be like them because there's not a temptation, but he is warning them. He is putting them on alert. You got to be careful because there will be a temptation to want to go and practice and do those other things. But he tells them it's not about your meaningless repetition. That's going to allow your prayer to go before God. It's not how many words you utter up. It's not your babbling. It's not your meaningless just saying the same thing over and over. That is not going to get the ear of God. He shows us in verse 8 that what's going to get us the ear of God is simply this. God will hear your prayer because he is your father. And he's as a good father, he knows what his children's need even before they come to him. That's the contrast he's making with the pagans. He said, you don't have to be like them. You don't have to just keep uttering mindless things over and over and over, thinking that's going to allow your prayer to be effective. He says, your, your father, your father knows what you need even before you go and offer up the prayer. So it's not your many words that's going to get you your, your prayer heard. It's God. It's himself. It's his nature. He's your father. He understands your need. He's good. And so that is where I want you focusing at in your prayers. Not the meaningless repetition of over and over and over. But the question when Jesus says this, the question that I'm thinking, and the question that you may be thinking is, well, why does Jesus want us to pray anyways then? If, if, if God knows what we need before we ask him, if he knows what I need, then Jesus, why are you 
asking us to pray because in this text, Jesus is not asking really us to pray. He's presuming that disciples of his are going to pray automatically. That's why he says in verse five, when you pray, it's not if you pray. He says when you pray, he's presuming that his disciples, those lights in the world, they are going to pray. But Jesus, you saying God already knows what I need anyway. So why are you asking me to pray, Jesus? See, he assumes or or the answer lies in the word, as we mentioned, father. It lies in the word father in verse eight. That's the answer where it lies. Because what do children do with their parents? Children, what they communicate with their parents, they communicate with their father. And not just when they need something, at least they shouldn't do that. But as children, what should we do? We communicate with our father. We communicate with that loving parent. Why? Because we learn from them. We want to talk to them. They help to grow us up. And so God is our father. You got to understand when the scripture calls God our father, the, the scriptures is trying to highlight a characteristic of a father that God shows. And so when it's calling God a father, it's highlighting his characteristics of a father that provides, the characteristics of a father that protects. That's why when God, uh, the scripture will sometimes, sometimes identify God as king. When it does that, it's, uh, it's highlighting his, his, uh, characteristics as a sovereign. It's highlighting his characteristics as a ruler, as someone having all authority, as someone reigning. So when the scripture says, or Jesus says, your father knows what you need, he's saying your father's so your provider. Your father's gonna, your father's gonna protect you. He's, he's gonna make sure you're okay. He has you. And what I also want to make clear, when Jesus says, your father knows what you need, we're, we're not talking about the universal fatherhood of God here. We're not talking about the universal fatherhood of God where we say that we're all God's children. You know, that's really popular in the world, right? We say we're all God's children. We're not talking about the universal fatherhood of God. You really won't find that in Scripture. There's one place in Acts 17 where Paul is speaking of that, but he's quoting a pagan philosopher when he uses that. So you don't find the universal fatherhood of God like we hear in the world. But the Bible, particularly the New Testament, when it's speaking of the fatherhood of God, is speaking to people who have become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is what it's speaking of when Jesus said, your father, it's those who have come to trust in Christ. He gives them this identity as sons and daughters of God. It is because of Christ. That is why in, in first, or sorry, in John chapter one, verse 12, John says this. He says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right. He gave the privilege. He gave the right to become children of God. It's not something that we're naturally born into. We are children of wrath. That is that, that is our natural nature is not children of God. We become that through following Christ. Christ gives us that identity. You can also see the reverse in John 8, where Jesus is having a conversation with some of the Jews and, and he tells them that God is not your father, but your father is really the devil. So that shows you again that we don't have a, a natural nature or we don't come born in as children of God. So when Jesus says, your father knows what you need, he's not talking about the universal fatherhood, but he's talking about children of God, people of God, people who have become children of God because we know Jesus. So when we pray, 
We are communicating with our Father. As children, when we pray, we are communicating with our Lord. But the other reason why we pray, yes, yes, we pray to communicate with our Father. Yes, we pray to communicate with our Lord. But we pray because as children, guess what? It's pleasing to hear our kids talk to us. Revelations, Revelations 5.8 describes the prayers of saints like incense. And what do incense give off? They give, they give off a sweet smelling odor. They smell good, meaning that when we communicate, when we pray to the Lord, it actually, it's pleasing to God. It's a sweet aroma. It's something that's good to our Lord. We pray because it's pleasing to our Lord. He likes, think about that. God likes it when you communicate with Him. It's pleasing. It's not if He needs it. God doesn't need anything, but as His children, it's pleasing. He, He relates our prayers to incense. That's what the 24 elders were holding. Since they were holding these boughs of incense, which represent the prayers of the saints in Revelation. So our, our prayers, they smell good to God. They're pleasing unto God. God likes it. So we pray because it's pleasing unto the Lord. We also pray because prayer is God's, one of God's means of allowing us to cast our cares, to cast our anxiety, to cast our burdens upon Him. Philippians 4, 6 tells us to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. So God has given us prayer as an act of something that benefits us. When we go and we pour out to the Lord and we pour out our spirit, he allows it to just release us. He allows a stress to, to come off of us. So now Jesus... As we're approaching the model prayer in verse 9, in the previous verses, he's already showed us what bad prayer looks like. He shows us what bad prayer practices looks like. That's the hypocritical prayer who's praying for the attention of others. He also showed us what uh, prayer looks like from the pagan standpoint. That's another aspect of bad prayer when we're just mindlessly rambling off different words. He's saying that is not the way to go. But then in 9, he's going to show us how we should pray. And in verses 9 through 13, most of us note this as the Lord's Prayer. It's probably better to be called the model prayer. The Lord's Prayer would be John 17, I would say. That's better, what Jesus is praying for us. But in here, Jesus is giving us the model prayer. And as D.A. Carson would say, in this model prayer, Jesus is not absolutizing the words of prayer, meaning that all of our prayers have to be exactly like this. He's not telling us how, he's not showing us um, what we should say, but how we ought to pray. He's given us the, the structure of our prayers. And we know that because Paul, in his various letters to the churches, when he was praying for them, Paul didn't just always begin his prayer with our Father. No, but he was actually praying for the specific needs, the specific things that they were dealing with. So that is not just a, a measure of prayer where we're always going, our, our Father. But when we are praying with people... We pray for their needs. So Jesus is not absolutizing the words here in prayer that we must say this every time we pray, but he's given us a structure in the way we approach and come to God. And that's a very important point because everybody don't know that. I, I remember a few years ago, I was, I was walking to my daughter's soccer game and there was a guy on his lawn and I wanted to share the gospel with him. So, so I went up to him and just started to engage in conversation with him and, you know, sharing the truth with him. And I asked him at the end, can I pray with you? 
He said, yeah. He said, you can pray. So we prayed. And then to find out he was Catholic, like a nominal Catholic. And then um, at the end he said, can I pray for you? I'm like, okay, sure. But guess how he started to pray for me? He started going, Our Father, which art in heaven, how be thy name. See, he understood. He didn't understand prayer. He thought, same thing here. When Jesus says pray, somebody says pray for me, you just start going, Our Father, which art in heaven. He didn't understand the aspects of prayer. And that's why I say this is important for us under, to understand that Christ is not absolutizing the words of prayer here. That anytime you pray, you pray this way. But this model prayer, he's giving us a structure of how we ought to pray. He's giving us a, a framework of how our prayer ought to go. And so you find in verses um, verses 9 through 10, it starts with, I'm just kind of giving you an outline. We're not going to do it all today. But verses 9 and 10, it starts with an outline of praise and honor to God. He starts with praise and honor to God in verses 9 and 10. And then verses 11, that's when our need comes up. He brings up praying for our bread. Verses 12, our sin issue comes up next. So it comes from praise and honor to God. It goes from our need, then our sin issue, our need for forgiveness comes up. And then in verse 13, we have God leading us, not leading us into temptation. And then the last part of that text, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. That part of the scripture, I know it's going to hurt some of you guys' feelings, but in some of the earliest manuscripts, that's not actually there. So if you have a Bible, it's probably in brackets like it is in mine for that last part, because that's not in the earliest manuscripts. But nonetheless, it summarizes or it starts the prayer off the same way it ended, if you will, or it ends the prayer the same way it begins with glory, honor, and praise to God. So he says, for your kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So it starts off the, the same way. But let us touch on verse 9. So Christ already showed us what prayer does not look like. He showed us what bad practices look like. And now he's showing us a model of what good prayer life looks like, what good prayer engagement looks like. And so he starts off verse 9. He says, pray then in this way. Pray then in this way. He says, our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. Now when we begin our, our Father what you must understand, we have to take the teachings that Jesus has already given us to verse 9 when he says, Our Father. And the teaching that he has already given us in 5 and 6 is that our heart has to be in the praying, right? We have to have an attitude that is directed towards God. So when we start our, our fathers, we learn that our heart has to be pure. It has to be not divided. Our heart can't be on praying to receive attention from others. But our heart has to be pure and focused solely on God. So when we begin verse 9 with our, our father and our prayer, we must understand that our heart, number one, has to be engaged. Your heart has to be engaged. It has to be basted and directed towards God. Must remember that. Beatitude number uh, six, blessed are the pure in heart. If you remember our teaching on that, pure in heart means to have a divided heart where part of your heart was here. I'm sorry, not having a pure, being pure in heart was to have a divided heart where part of your heart was over here and part of your heart was over there. Part of your heart was, I'm going to pray to God, but part of my heart is I want this glory and attention to men. That is not a pure heart. But a pure heart is a heart that is undivided, that is focusing on God. So we understand that when we come to verse 9, and we say, our Father who is in heaven, we are coming with pure hearts, hearts that are engaged, hearts that are focused on God. 
But we also learn from our teaching, not only is our, do our hearts have to be engaged from verses 5 and 6 we learn, but we also learn from 7 that our minds have to be engaged. Remember Jesus says in verse 7, do not use meaningless repetition like the Gentiles. That is just thoughtless prayers. That is just thoughtless repetition. I'm just saying over and over and over. I'm putting my mind on auto, autopilot and I'm just repeating the same stuff over and over and over. Jesus said, no, you don't do that. Your mind has to be engaged as well. Your mind has to be engaged when you come to the Lord in prayer. So when we're coming to God in prayer, one, our heart must be engaged. We must have pure hearts that are directed towards God and our mind must be engaged. Our mind must be focused on or must come with a, with a mindset of worshiping God. So when we start these Our Fathers, we've got to make sure that both of those things are right there. When we start our prayers, any of our prayers to God, we must make sure that our hearts and our, our, our hearts and our minds are fully engaged before you go to the Lord in prayer. We just don't want to start off just saying anything. So check your hearts, check your minds when you're coming to the Lord in prayer. But the next thing that we must do, in addition to keeping our hearts right towards the Lord and our minds fixed to Lord, towards the Lord, when we come to the Lord and we say our Father, we must come with the moxie of a five-year-old. We must come with the, the moxie of a five-year-old. Some of you should be saying, Jerome, what do you mean by that? What do you mean when I come and say our Father in verse 9 that I must come with the moxie of a five-year-old? What I mean by that is this. There is a difference from when an adult child calls out to their father and a five or six year old calls out to their father. Right? There's a difference in that. There's a difference when, for example, Nehemiah and, and Riley, when they call out to dad, and in and, and their eyes, dad is still a superhero. Serenity understands that daddy is pretty human. She's nine. But when it comes to Riley and Nehemiah, they still believe that dad is a superhero. They still believe that dad can do anything. As they get older, they'll realize that dad does not have a cape. <laughs> and they will realize that dad is very, very human. But at this moment, they believe that, God, that dad is this superhero guy that can do anything. And guess what? In the Bible, that is how it describes the people of God. It describes the people of God from the standpoint of a child. Of a child. That's why in John 13, 33, Jesus calls his disciples little children. He calls them little children. And guess what? John picks up on that teaching and he uses it in his book in 1 John. He begins to call them little children. So Jesus calls his disciples, people who are following him, little children. Jesus also said that we must enter the kingdom of God like a child in Matthew 8, 18, 3 to 4. Again, you see, it's this childhood theme. It's not a, a full adult, but it's a child on how we should approach God. Another verse I want to show you is Galatians 4. I want to read it to you. I want you to go there with me. Turn some pages with me, please. Galatians 4, 6 and 7. Galatians 4, 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul writing. We're looking at the childhood of the believer. Look what he tells them, the Galatians here. The six and seven. 
He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then a heir through God. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying, the Spirit of Christ has come in you and He has allowed you or moved you and allowed you or enabled you to call Dad or to call God Daddy in a sense. Abba is the closest word. We don't have, that's an Aramaic word, Abba, but the closest word in our, in our society may be Daddy. Paul is saying, Christ's Spirit has come in you and has enabled you to view and to know God as Daddy, meaning that outside of the Spirit of God working in you, you will not know God as a loving, nurturing, caring Father. See, it takes the Spirit of God for you even to see God as Father truly. He, Paul is saying that can only happen because Jesus Christ, the, the cry of, of Christ to the Father, Abba, is now in you. And that is why you can approach God as Abba. Why? Because Christ has done it in you. He said you are no longer slaves anymore. You're no longer slaves to sin. You're no longer slaves under the law. But you are now sons because the Spirit of Christ is in you, enabling you to yell out to God, Daddy, Father. You see this little childlike way that the Bible describes the believers. That is why I say that when we come to God, you must come with the moxie of a five-year-old. Understanding that God is truly that superhero. God is that superhero that can do all things. He is the true superhero. To, to, to borrow a word from Tim Keller, Tim Keller says that all children's tales are true. And what he means by that, he says, he says that Jesus is the true Peter Pan that will take us to Neverland where we will never grow old. Or, or God is that knight in shining honor that comes and saves us from distress. Or, or, or Christ is the true Lion King that gives his life for the saints. See, all children's tales in light of scripture, he said, are true. So we approach God. When we come to the Lord in prayer, when you come to the Lord in prayer, you're coming with your hearts engaged. You're coming with pure hearts that are not divided, not seeking your own attention. You're coming with a mind that is bent on God, and you're coming with the moxie of a five-year-old believing that my God, my Abba, my Daddy can do anything. He's a superhero. That already saved the day, like one of my favorite songs. He's already saved the day. Christ has already saved the day. He's already redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's already broken the bondage of sin. Christ has already came. We are looking for superheroes. Christ has already done the work. We also see here in verse 9, back in our main text, he says, Our Father who is in heaven, the location of God. So we're coming with a heart that's focused, a mind that's focused in our prayer. We're coming with the moxie of a five-year-old. We're also considering God's position where he is. Our Father, which art in heaven. He says God is in heaven. you got to understand Jesus is speaking to a largely Jewish audience. And the glimpse of heaven that they have, guess where it comes from? It comes from Isaiah 6. Do you remember the, the beauty of Isaiah 6? Let's check that out. Isaiah 6. Where we get some glimpse of heaven. Because Jesus is speaking to Israelites who would know this very well when he says the word heaven. 
Heaven is one. Oh yeah, it's that thing that Isaiah has, that, that vision that he has. So let's look at the image of heaven that we are giving in the Old Testament. Verse 6. Isaiah says, I'm going to just read this. I just want you to just to behold this. So if you can, just, just try to just behold it. Not trying to look at the different structure, but just allow the words to just go into your spirit where you can behold it. He says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So now he says he sees the Lord. He's getting a vision of heaven. He's seeing God. He says he's sitting on a throne. He's lofty, exalted. And it says the train of his robe filled the temple. So it's filling the temple. You have seraphim, it says, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he fly, he flew. And one called out to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold tremble at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with the smoke. Do you see that beauty, this image of God that we're getting at the seraphim? They don't even want to look at the holiness of God. They're covering their face because they see how holy he is and they're just flying around and they're going, holy, holy, holy. They see the God, they're in the presence of God. They said the whole earth is full of his glory. That is the image that we're given of heaven. And that is the God we're praying to. See, you gotta, you gotta think on that when you're coming to God in prayer, when you're getting on your knees in prayer, you're praying to the God who has the seraphim flying around saying, holy, 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 who's in the presence of angels who say, holy, holy, holy. That is the God you're speaking to when you say, I'm going to the Lord in prayer. So you have to think on those things when you're coming to prayer. I'm finna go and talk to this God. This is the same God that allows me to call him Abba. The one where the seraphim are, are, are flying around, they, they don't even want to approach him. God says that I can call him Abba because the Spirit of Christ is working in me and has given me sonship and daughtership where I am now a son and a daughter of God. I can approach this God. See, that, that is how you have to look at prayer. You have to approach this holy, holy God who's in heaven. Jesus says, pray our Father which art in heaven. Think on those things as you're coming to the Lord in prayer. Ah, oh, it's just a, it's amazing the, the beauty of that. We get another glimpse of that in, in the New Testament, Revelation 4, if you want to go with me there, another image of that. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 2 and 7, I'm going to read this to you. I just want you to behold it again to see the beauty of this is God in heaven on his throne. This is the beauty of God. It says, verse 2, chapter 4, Revelation. It says, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone. And they and Sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four. There, there were twenty-four thrones, and upon those thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Now move to verse eleven. Look what they're saying. It says they crashed. They, they, they threw their crowns down. I'm sorry, no, chapter 5, verse 11, not verse 11 and 4. Chapter 5, verse 11, that's what I want you to see. This is the same, this is the same vision. He says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne 
and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads, myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. Twelve, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. 13, it says, And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things, then I heard them saying, To him who sits on the throne to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, dominion forever and ever. That is the scene of heaven. That is who you're praying to. That is who you are approaching. You have to think on those things when you go to your time in prayer. You're approaching God who is in heaven. That should sober you up as you just go into prayer like, whoa, I'm going to approach this God? This God is allowing me to call him Abba, the one who has thousands of people just worshiping and praising. I'm going to approach this God in my prayer, my words. I'm going to go to his ears. I don't even have to worry about if my words are going to go to his ears. They're going to go because Christ has allowed that. He has made me a son and daughter. I don't have to worry about my sin bouncing and hit my, my prayer bouncing and hitting the ceilings. But I, but I know because I'm a child, my prayer is being heard by my father. That is the one that I'm approaching, the one who is sitting in heaven. That's what we must realize. And that is what Solomon realized in Ecclesiastes 5.2 when he said this. He says, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. I love this part. Look what he says here. He says, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. That is solid. He said, don't be hasty and impulsive in your thoughts. You're on earth, sir. God is in heaven. So understand who you're approaching. So he says here at the end of that verse, he said, therefore, let your words be few. Realize you're on earth. God is in heaven. Realize who you're stepping to. Slow your horses, young fella. You're approaching God in your prayer. You're not going to just go in there just throwing up some prayer. You're going to come with your mind engaged. You're going to come with your heart engaged. You're going to come with the moxie of a five-year-old. And you're going to recognize who I'm speaking to. This is Jesus showing us how we ought to pray. And how we are not to pray in the ways of the pagan. So I pray that this affects you and how you go to God in prayer. That you're thinking on these things. Because it will change the way you go to prayer. Because you recognize this is God. Allows me to call him Abba. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for this means of prayer that we could come to you, Lord God, because of the way of your son. He has made a way for us to enter into the holies of holies, to enter into your presence, to speak to you, Lord God. Even though we are so not worthy, Lord, you allow us to be your sons and daughters. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction, Jesus. Thank you for knowing our hearts that was prone to wander off and do the things of culture and do the things that we see other people do. God, thank you for convicting us and bringing us back to the ways of true righteousness and prayer to you. Lord God, work in my heart. God, work in my brother's and sister's heart, Lord God, that we may approach you, approach you with reverence and awe. Understanding that we have this privilege to come to you and you hear us. Oh, Lord God, allow this word to stay on our heart as we go throughout our weeks, remembering who we are talking to in those moments of prayer. You be glory. Glory, glory to your name. 
Amen.